There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Curzon Film Podcast. I'm Jake Cunningham and joining me this week are Irena Muzumeci. Hello. Michael Garrett. Hello. James King. Hi. And Ryan Hewitt. Hello. And uh, we've joined together because it's a very happy Hanukkah on the Curzon Film Podcast this week. It may already be December, but we will be delivering you a comically Black Friday as we have a new Hanukkah film, Happy Ends, to talk about. It also marks the beginning of the Happy Hanukkah season and we will be revisiting a number of Hanukkah films in the cinemas and on this podcast. And to tell us more about that, it's James King. Hi. Yeah, so um, I guess the season in many ways is fairly self-explanatory. So we're releasing the latest Hanukkah film on the 1st of December, Happy End. And we thought that in conjunction with the release, we'd do a nice 35mm retrospective at Curzon Soho over the festive period. We thought maybe it was a little ambitious to do one film for every day of Hanukkah, but we decided on six of the very best of his back catalogue, uh, spanning yeah, the festive season to kind of have a celebration of the joyous oeuvre that is Michael Hanukkah's works. Excellent. You four have all revisited your favourite from this selection uh, to inform on this conversation. And as well as that, we've got an interview with Matthew Kasovitz, who stars in Happy End as well. We will start from the beginning with the end the happy end which is a film that a number of people have um, noted that kind of cherry picks a number of michael haneke's themes from his previous work and we're going to dip into those and see how they relate to the films that you four have all selected as well and so something that i'd like to begin with is the very very beginning of happy end which uh, is a screen it is a vertical aspect ratio screen a mobile phone screen and voyeuristically recording a mother um Obviously, to me, the beginning and the ending of a film are always the most powerful moments to experience. They kind of set the tone for everything and they wrap up at the end and leave you with, with an image. And this film very much begins in a very mediated way. So we're watching mobile phone film footage, possibly being filmed live. Um, we don't know who is filming this and we are very much in the position of the people who are experiencing the image in a very uh, voyeuristic way. And uh, this is a theme that kind of runs across a lot of Hanukkah's films, which constantly play around with screens within the screens, whether it is the use of different 
uh, formats, different aspect ratio, different kind of media within the media. There's a lot of sort of use of VHS within the digital image. There's a lot of use of um, digital within the filmed uh, on film frame in films like Caché, which I'm sure we'll get to discuss. Um, but also, um, he is a filmmaker who is an absolute aesthete, and the way he frames uh, his his films is always very significant, and even in um, in the case of the film that I selected to kind of delve into, which is the White Ribbon, uh, which I think is Haneke's only film not to be set in the contemporary uh, or sort of very close uh, present, alternative present, near past, uh, but is set in a very distinct historical period where really there were no screens as such, uh, or the cinema was a, still a very distant uh, experience and did not take place in the world of the White Ribbon, which is set in 1913 in a village in northern Germany. Um, still, Haneke's interest in the frame and how to frame the image is fundamental to what you actually see. There's a lot of um, things that are obscured from view. He constantly plays around with um, windows, doors, and doorways. And there's a lot of stuff that happens behind doorways, and you're forced to watch and experience what's happening behind the door from in front of it. So it's, it's a universe that's kind of closed off to the viewer, but in a sense, there's still that idea of what are you watching, what are you looking at? And that seems to me a really crucial question that Haneke's films all ask of the audience. What is it that you are watching? Mm. That CCTV footage bookends Caché. And he uses, I think, screens a lot to act as a gateway from us as cinema watchers to taking part in the film. And so beginning Happy End with a mobile phone it's a camera that we recognise as to be real. So then when the next shot comes along, the non-camera of Haneke's camera within that world, we've had this bridge of a camera style that we recognise to help us enter into it. And we also have that through CCTV footage as well, later on in Happy End, obviously in his other films as well. And I think that's a really neat trick of Haneke using cameras that we know to get involved in his film. At the same time, it's, it's very alienating to be watching uh, such a small portion of the screen in which the action is happening. I actually found myself watching the bits where there's no action happening and thinking, why am I being made to watch this wide screen landscape frame uh, while concentrating on the small portion of it? And it, it really kind of speaks to the to the questioning, I think, of the viewing practices that Haneke keeps bringing into his, his filmmaking because actually what we are watching in Happy End uh, is somebody... Um, filming a crime that they are in the process of committing and it's filmed in a very comical way but at the same time what are the consequences of that mm. so it's a yes I think something about familiarizing the viewers with the kind of filming techniques that they are familiar with but at the same time it's it's a distancing and alienation device yeah. um, and there's there's a lot of that kind of work in his uh, in his films, both in terms of the the sort of meta cinematic elements, but also in the mise en scène. Yeah. Um, so we've we've mentioned it a number of times already. That is Happy End, um, but we don't actually we haven't disclosed what that film is actually about. So James, would you like to tell us a, a bit about Happy End and perhaps how this mobile phone that begins it ties us into it? I mean, Happy End is in many ways one of the sort of more accessible Hanukkah films in that it is uh, quite funny in many ways. It's a, a satire of a bourgeois Calais construction family 
um, and it sort of follows the various members of the family and uh, the drama unravels against the backdrop of the refugee crisis that's currently ongoing in Europe. But it's sort of in many ways amalgamation of a lot of his themes to do with familial dysfunction, um, you know, the inability for humans to adequately communicate with one another. It's got a lot of recurring Hanukkah players, um, Isabelle Huppert, ever-present, Jean-Louis Trignon almost reviving his character from a more, at least riffing on it in a sort of very profound way. Uh, Matthew Kasovitz, the director of La Haine and Gothica, uh, comes in as one of the lead players. And it also features Toby Jones. It's one of the first real English-language Hanukkah sequences. Um, So it is, in many ways, quite a sort of accessible Hanukkah film. It's not quite as uh, harrowing as Amor or the White Ribbon. It is. It has moments of real black humour. I mean, I think it probably reflects on the viewer as much as anything else what parts you find funny, but I found myself laughing throughout, probably because of my slightly morbid world view. But um, <laughs> it is, you know, Hanukkah doing basically a family comedy. Yeah, I almost felt like with this uh, kind of sprawling dysfunctional family it felt like Haneke doing an episode of Arrested Development. Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think it's the closest he'll come to a, to a comedy <laughs> all out. And, uh, you know, depending on your interpretation, the last moments of the film, I don't really want to go into too much, but it's sort of, again, the mirror image of the first sequence again shot on a mobile phone. Uh, it's just outright hilarious yeah. there's also the ending as I mentioned you know that for me the, the beginning and the ending are always so important and the ending also has this mobile phone coming out again and kind of what's happening in front of it and behind it and that's that's a real comedy moment even though the comedy is so bleak and yeah. really I, I was asking myself not only what am I watching but what am I laughing at mm. and why mm. am I laughing at it instead of thinking oh god this is absolutely dreadful what's going on um, and it's a, I, I'm I wanted to ask something to Michael because I know Michael has a very specific interest in Samuel Beckett and uh, this uh, happy end uh, film throughout I was thinking of happy days even though it's not a direct reference but just this kind of the way this ironic title is utilized and the comedy in the Haneke uh, multiverse really does remind you of that sort of bleak uh, almost apocalyptic sense of you know human relationships being reduced to the quintessential. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting, a really interesting comparison. I'd not, I'd not thought of. I think um, you know, uh, just thinking of that quickly, uh, there is uh, a certain starkness in, in their own uh, individual styles. You know, I think that the uh, the starkness of Hanukkah isn't exactly the same as the sort of otherworldliness or sort of disconnected from human uh, worlds of uh, Beckett's uh, best known plays, for, such as Happy Days, but also um, you know, Waiting for Godot or Not I or um, Rock. By. But I think that w- one thing that is interesting actually to, con- to consider in relation to Beckett and also um, uh, Happy End at least is this idea of is this idea of humour because there's always humour actually in Beckett's plays as dark as they can can kind of seem you know even you know c- certainly in Waiting for Godot where the two uh, protagonists Vladimir and Estrogen are kind of sort of a Laurel and Hardy figures you know and I think that you know there, there's a definite uh, reference to uh, silent comedy in in that that and also Craps. Taves. So yeah, I think 
that yeah this idea of I think what, one thing that is really interesting about Happy End is is the idea is you know you've, you've been saying about the the, the comedy um, Irena he's using this uh, this idea of comedy to get you into you know the really difficult subject matter that you know is, is common in, in a lot of his other films and is, is presented in, in different ways I think that's something that I, I particularly um, enjoy about about happy end and Michael uh, we've all we've all picked a favorite from this season I actually chose to speak of one that we've win we're not screening um, because I, I believe there's not a 35 millimeter print available the film that I've chosen is the seventh continent from 1989 uh, which is uh, I believe it's Hanukkah's f- uh, debut cinematic film I, he'd done television um, bef- before that and uh, I, I picked this one as it was it's the first Hanukkah film that I saw uh, so it's always uh, stayed with me. I'd, I'd not seen anything uh, quite like it, I think, uh, before um, before I'd seen it. And uh, then seeing the rest of Hanukkah's films, I do feel that it's, it, it's in some ways set slightly um, apart maybe from, from some of his later films. I think just considering uh, the comedy of Happy End and how that draws you into the themes of 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 the film, one thing I find that's quite quite interesting about Seventh Continent is uh, how what it uses, which is it, it's not it's not a funny film. This is um, if you're unaware of the the synopsis, very short, and I'm not um, uh, giving you any spoilers because it tells you it, uh, what, what's happening uh, quite up front. It's about uh, a family uh, who have a very uh, mediocre kind of uh, life and have you know quite ordinary jobs and are quite comfortably well off. Who decide to commit suicide jointly devi- decide to commit suicide, um, and you. See See that in the first hour of the film you see their day-to-day lives and in the second hour of the film you see them destroy themselves and, and kill themselves at the end and uh, the the kind of the, the tragedy of the film is that the uh, they go about their their own deaths in exactly the same way as they go about doing their about their ordinary lives about um, how they go to work how they make their breakfast how they go to the supermarket how they are at a checkout how um, you know the, the, these sorts of things and I think that what the interesting thing about the film is is this is the idea of rhythm and I think that what I um, uh, find in it is that there is there is a rhythm that really draws you in and draws you along this actually in some ways very banal but in very tragic uh, story um, you've got a rhythm of uh, checkout beeps you've got rhythm of people keying in uh, figures on a, on a till you've got uh, as as the, the film progresses they deliberately break everything in the house and they're smashing things and they're smashing bits of glass or they're picking up records one by one and smashing them over their knee and uh, a lot of the you know the music that they're listening to is very banal. Like she used to own one of the records that they smash, uh, but I'm not going to say who it's by because it's, it's I don't want to insult any potential listeners in case the band are out there listening. As I'm sure they are. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think I think that's that, that's something that really stuck with me. This this idea of like difficult material presented in this rhythmic way it kind of reminded me in some ways of a, uh, a band like if you're aware of throbbing gristle the um uh, sort of the original industrial band uh you know who had this uh, would do songs of 20 minute song about the moors murderers was their first song very friendly and that's kind of like this it, it's, it, there's something really remarkable about the very difficultness of the difficultness uh, difficulty of the uh, subject matter but there's uh, always some kind of uh, warmth in the actual music that can means you can actually listen to it. Or there's a song called "Hamburger Lady," which is um, about someone who's very disfigured in a in a in a in a fire. A really horrific song, but it's it's actually somehow it's listenable. And I think that's a real talent to tie this horrific 
subject matter in with something that's very seductive to to watch in this case of uh, Seventh Continent. Uh, you mentioned there about taking these kind of uh, very horrible ideas and horrible instances and turning them into something watchable, and that's very much what we've got with Happy End, as, as you touched on there, James, that it is his very most accessible, even though there are ideas in it that he's touched on in a far more horrible way before. Uh, and that leads us on to the lovely theme of death and suicide, mm. and that began Haneke's career with Seventh Continent, and it's where we're looking at it now, and very much in between as well. Let's talk about suicide and Haneke, shall we? Well, I mean, I think it's not just suicide, it's also euthanasia, which yes. is obviously something he feels very passionately about. We've seen this in Amour, uh, the act of actually, you know, at times someone being able to die with dignity, actually being preferable to, you know, suffering indefinitely and pointlessly. Um, which, uh, as he's sort of spoken about in recent interviews, is something that's uh, quite personal to him. He was raised by his aunt, and he, you know, has been quite open with the fact that he sort of basically allowed her to die rather than see her continuing to suffer in an incredibly degrading um, and humiliating and undignified manner. Um, so for Hanukkah, you know, it's, it's, it's you, you know, the act of death is not necessarily a negative thing. You know, I think for him, you know, death is preferential to an un undignified life. I mean, the man dresses very well. Um, and so, yeah, it's not necessarily something that's completely negative. He's quite, he's quite sort of philosophical about it in this way, quite accepting. You know, he's open about the fact that even though his films often show the darker side of life, he... He is aware and acknowledges and loves, you know, the capacity for humans to create beauty as well. So it's about range. Mm. It's it's always very interesting to me that in Haneke's films, death and suicide are not um, dealt with in the same way as it deals with violence, which is a completely different way of, of thinking. He talked a lot, actually, when he was uh, doing his kind of press tour uh, on the White Ribbon on the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism. And I, I come from a Catholic country where uh, suicide is very much considered a violent act toward the self. And in fact, I think suicide is sin. still criminalized uh, in some cultures, particularly Catholic cultures. Um, so that's quite an interesting thing. And he does not see the violence of suicide as a societal violence. And that's something that's always, in a way, struck me and alienated me a little bit from his work. Um, but at the same time, the way he deals with violence on screen and off screen, you know, again, coming back to this theme of what you see and what you don't see, which is so central to Hidden, for instance, I think mm. it's, it's absolutely the theme of the film. And the reason why I was thinking about what am I watching when I'm watching the opening scene of Happy End, which is essentially a murder. And uh, it's, it's a murder made to look like a suicide. Mm. There are so many different complicated Chinese boxes of meaning going on in there. Um, and yeah, I don't know where I'm going with this other than I, I'm very keen to hear what, you know, what Hidden kind of brought up being looked at in, with the framework yeah, of well, I think Happy End. We, we get so inundated with death on screen in cinema all the time now that it just has ultimately become meaningless in so many films. Um, and Haneke has a such a, uh, an eye for actually giving giving death value which seems like such a bewildering thing to actually think about that death should have value on screen which obviously it should but we're so used to it it not having that and something like hidden mm. has probably one of the most remarkable deaths of the 21st century for me anyway and i didn't know it was coming yeah so well i watched uh, hidden cachet uh, michael haneke's 2005 film uh, for those who don't know, it's about a family who live in a city, a very fairly normal family, uh, 
fairly well off, and they suddenly start to re uh, receive some videotapes sent to their house that appear to be filming them going about their day-to-day -day business. They don't know where these tapes are coming from, they don't know the motive behind them being sent to them, but it's pretty frightening stuff for them. What unfolds after that is they then go into a, a they're trying to investigate where these are coming from and it leads them to some into their past and some particularly nasty parts of their past. Jake, you, may, yeah, you mentioned there's a fairly startling, extremely vicious suicide scene in Hidden. Uh, it comes completely out of the blue, as is, I want to say, typical of all of Haneke's films, if most of them, if not all of them, he doesn't employ any kind of score or source music or any kind of tells that let you know what you're in for. You don't see it coming, it just comes completely out of the blue. It's utterly vicious. And I think in many ways, Happy End, certainly in this treatment of death, how you, how you see it, how you experience it, and suicide in particular, Happy End is very much an updating of the same ideas that were in Hidden. Not just in the actual acts that are happening on screen, but also how they're shown. For example, in Hidden, there are scenes where there are television screens in the background of a house and they're showing uh, newsreel footage of the Iraq war. And there are faces of dead soldiers that are appearing on the screen. And it's just a backdrop to a domestic situation. No one's paying too much attention to it. It's just part of a household. You come in, you put the telly on, you put the news on. You've got all these atrocities and these violent acts are there. And the media makes us desensitised to these kind of things. And it's only when death and suicide, in particular, are brought into these characters' real world, outside of the television, that the true horror of it really takes them. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it's ruinous. Yeah, um, that's one reason that I really loved the, the mobile phones in Happy End, because yeah. it felt like something that he had always had almost in the back, on the back burner actually bringing it forward and making it part of the storytelling, which up until we had these devices on us all the time, we, he had never really had that opportunity before. But he's actually putting those devices that he's used before in the palm of the hands of the people in the story, which I absolutely love. Yeah, and, and it's even more interesting with, this, with the, the approach to it in Happy End is that with the update of social media moving away from television, which is a very passive con consumption of television... In Happy End, with these phones, we are the content creators. So as Irena mentioned, the, it opens with a murder, essentially filmed on a mobile phone, where a young girl is effectively the producer, writer, director of a constructed reality show about a murder. And she's broadcasting it to her subscriber base that are on Snapchat <laughs> or something, and she's the producer, and it's even more sinister, this idea of a media about death. He, that he, we make. In the Q&A last week, he talked about how... Um, he, he was asked exactly a question about the internet and how does he see social media. And obviously, we're all very familiar with Michelle Haneke's uh, Twitter persona <laughs> when he goes on about his kittens and his palm doors. <laughs> but he did say he doesn't really engage with social media as such, but he did do a lot of research and talk to his um, uh, nephews and uh, children or grandchildren. I'm not sure what uh, exactly he said. But the thing that was really striking was that he... Um, sees the internet as having taken the place of the confessional. So it's a space where, uh, because today we've largely removed religion from our day-to-day -day life or the presence of God, in a sense, uh, where we can go and seek absolution for our crimes, which is, again, a very Catholic idea. Um, he, uh, he thinks that in this day and age, this is what people do. They go on the internet to share 
something they have done and whatever the result of that is, uh, whether it's absolution or whether it's some kind of uh, glorification through uh, the virality of things that become and celebrated or even the process of shaming is, is kind of the same goal. Uh, the idea is to share something uh, in that kind of way so that it's taken off you as an individual. Uh, so it, it, was, it was quite fascinating. But it also made me think about another theme which for me kind of goes across a lot of Haneke's film and is very, very prominent in, uh, in The White Ribbon, um, which is a film about uh, some mysterious atrocities being committed in this village uh, in Germany, northern Germany, at the beginning of the 20th century and very much about the relationship between children and their parents. And the film does a lot of work to point towards the fact that perhaps the children are the ones committing these atrocities, but this mystery of who is doing these things and why is never resolved. However, the children are totally crucial to it. The children in this film are terrifying, and they are terrified. And I think these two things go hand in hand together, and they speak so much to this theme of generational misunderstanding and generational punishment that kind of goes two ways from the parents to the children going back to the beginning of happy end where it's very much about you know the mother and daughter and what's going on there um i mean we've talked very openly about the fact that the scene is a murder scene um the girl sort of tests something uh she sees her mother taking uh antidepressants and we think she's witnessed her mother taking too many antidepressants at some point so she tries it out on a gerbil, the gerbil dies, so she gives the mother too many pills gradually, and the mother dies. And uh, uh, later on in the film, the girl also takes too many pills. She finds the leftover pills and she takes them. And so there's this sense of you know children imitating parents, imitating behavior that should not be replicated, but it kind of continues to go on, and it's cycles of that violence, which is also something that happens in Hidden. Mm. Uh, between the, the father and the the fathers and the children, and the, uh, we were talking about the closing scene in Hidden one way recently. Right? Yeah, so the the film ends well. It's a bit of a might be a bit of a spoiler to say, but it <laughs> it closes on a fairly ambiguous shot unless you happen to notice two particular characters meeting, and it, it the the whole thing about Hidden is you never really know. It establishes a kind of an air of complete mistrust with everything you're seeing, not just the things that the characters are doing to one another, but even what Haneke's telling you. The way he stages the shots, the recorded videotapes, and then the way he stages his own shots that are not these videotapes is, is seamless, and they're very difficult to tell apart. So even at the end, you're, you're watching a shot that could be another one of these videotapes. It could have a motive behind why what's happening on screen is happening. So, it, But it is it's very much about... Um, it's about the kids. It's about a mistrust of of children. The first person who is suspected in Hidden when these tapes arrive is their son. The father, George, immediately wonders, is it our son or is it is our son's friends? He becomes a figure of mystery the entire time. He disappears and he doesn't come home from school. And, and he's always the, the main suspect. And in the absence of ever, and just not wanting to accept that it could be anything more sinister than that mm-hmm. is the main thing. There's a line in The White Ribbon where um, two adult characters are, are talking about one of these crimes having been carried out on a little boy who is disabled. And they say, you know, how could they have done this to a child, beating up a child? And up until that point in the film, you've actually seen the adult carry out pretty violent 
ruthless punishment on the children, you know, being violent towards them physically. Uh, one scene that I mentioned earlier is what you watch through a doorway, you know, through behind a door, you hear a child being whipped. Uh, by his father. Uh, there's another child who gets completely shamed because he has been caught masturbating. He's 12 and uh, he's told this uh, absolutely harrowing sort of children's cautionary tale about a boy who was touching himself inappropriately and develops the plague and withers away and dies. And the boy who has been told this story bursts into tears and he's completely devastated and thinks the same thing is going to happen to him. So. Throughout the film, you watched adults do exactly these kind of acts of violence onto children. And so the question is, is completely idiotic. How, how could they have got the idea? Well, it's been done to them constantly. So, of course, they will do onto others as it's done onto them, which is... A I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Very Hanukkah, uh, very biblical uh, theme, uh, but certainly a very Hanukkah theme. The, the girl in Happy End is called Eva, which is the same name as the girl in uh, Seventh Continent, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was, there was a, a Q&A with Michael Haneke last week at Curzon Chelsea, and one of the uh, people in the audience asked this of Michael Haneke. He said, you know, there's, a, there's the same name of, uh, the, as Irena just said, um, the, the young girl in Seventh Continent has got the same name as the young girl in Happy End. And uh, Haneke had a very charming answer to this. He said... Oh, you know, in <laughs> names in films don't really mean that much. In literature, they mean a lot. In films, they don't really mean that much. I've always used the same name since the beginning of my career when I was making television 40 years ago. It's always the same names, partly because I don't have much imagination, but also because it's always the same story. And um, I think that's... Really interesting, really interesting. I think that, you know, we've been saying about several films with uh, comparable themes uh, within Hanukkah's oeuvre, you know, and he, he was obviously being, he was being funny. It was, it was very funny uh, Q&A, really light-hearted Q&A. And just listening to uh, Irena and Ryan talking there about uh, cachet and also Happy End with this idea of, you know, mediation and mobile phones. Uh, it also makes me think of Benny's Video, which is a film that I've not seen for quite a long time and I'm looking forward to seeing it after having seen Happy End where in that one it's it's uh, made in the early 90s and um, a young uh, teenage a teenage boy videos himself committing a crime um, and so yes I'm quite interested to see how these two films play off of each other with obviously video you know is there's, there's there's not the immediate kind of self-publication that uh, the mobile phone or snapchat uh, has so yes I'm quite quite interested in that uh, Ryan mentioned in in Hidden uh, that there's a story about the Iraq War is the backdrop and it's just on the television and in Happy End uh, you know it's in Calais so therefore the Calais jungle is is in people's minds even though you you know it's barely mentioned uh, and Seventh Continent um, has uh, the time of Perestroika. Um, 
in the background and you hear that on the on the radio you hear about um there was an aeroflot plane that was hijacked and then you see um the family drive past a car accident and and so on and there's this whole idea of sort of like being disconnected and i think the the idea of parents and children being disconnected emotionally is really strong in uh, seventh continent also uh, and i think in these in the different films it's really explored in very different ways i mean you know the idea that in hidden that the child is the first person who gets accused of of, of the crime, uh, you know, in the white ribbon, this this whole children and uh, and adults uh, theme is 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 the film, you know, is the driving force of the film. And then I think in in Happy End, it's really it's really subtle. There's obviously been a divorce earlier in the uh, before the film started between the young girl's parents, and the the father. Uh, has not seen his child in a while and quite a while and finds it really difficult you know they have very awkward conversations together um, you know and I think um, you know this idea that of, of, of Hanukkah saying oh it's you know kind of you know making a joke saying it's the same story well it's actually a really interesting story and you can look at it from so many angles and even though we're you know we know we're going to get death we know we're going to get these awkward relationships they're all they're, they're always very subtly and interestingly different you know the backdrop of the news and so on that you know it's 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 uh you know many a true word spoken in jest you know mm. so james we've talked about a lot of different themes there uh, in a number of different haneke films i'm wondering how you could uh tell us about how they inform on time of the wolf as well yeah well i think sort of time of the wolf for me is quite an interesting one because it's sandwiched between the piano teacher mm. which came out in 2001 it was very much haneke's breakout film and Caché, which came out in 2005 and was, you know, his his most commercially successful film to date. Uh, whereas Time of the Wolf sort of somewhat fallen off the radar in terms of recognition. But for me, it's one of his great films, uh, which he made, yeah, in between the two in 2003. And it follows Isabelle Huppert and her family um, in a world where there's sort of been an undefined societal collapse and it all takes place in the French countryside, and we follow this family as they're navigating a, a sort of post-apocalyptic landscape. Rations are in short supply. Um, there doesn't seem to be any form of authority around, and people are very much... It's, it's, it's kind of like an episode of The Walking Dead without any zombies. <laughs> um, but uh, for me, it's just fascinating, because it's quite different from many of his other films. It's not a period drama in like the white ribbon but it is almost speculative fiction it's the closest he'll get to sort of science fiction um and and the way he navigates this post-apocalyptic landscape in very sort of mundane ordinary detail you know the practicalities of what it would be like to live in a world in which society has collapsed um, and it features, you know, a brilliant performance from Isabelle Huppert. It's got some of his most formally accomplished sequences, some truly sort of suspense-filled, action-filled sequences. Um, and it also, oh, it touches on sort of... We've talked a lot about how Haneke's films lean quite heavily on sort of Christian Catholic themes, but this one is the closest he gets to really exploring Judaism and and kind of Jewish theology. I mean, there is, um, you know, the title itself, and there are plenty of allusions to what is quite a sort of um, odd Hasidic strain of mysticism uh, to it? do with this. Um, it's the myth of the just men. Um, so several times throughout the film, they make allusions to the just men. 
And uh, the just man is this, um, yeah, like I said, in uh, Hasidic mysticism, there's the concept of um, for every generation since the time of Moses, there's 36 just men, or lamed waf, as they're called, which is um, roughly translates as hidden righteous ones. Um, and it's their burden to kind of shoulder the, the, the worries and the suffering of all mankind. Um, and their perception of life on earth is pretty hellish because they only see it through this filter of intense human suffering. Um, and often their, their, their most defined feature is that they're anonymous, so they must carry this duty out in complete anonymity. Anyone who claims to be a just man, it's proof that they're certainly not. Um, and half the time, these just men, they don't even realize their kind of wretched lot in life. Um, and it's an incredible kind of martyring role. Um, but legend goes that um, if one of these 36 just men were to ever go missing, then the world would come to an abrupt end. Um, and it's, it's an incredibly fascinating sort of odd strain of Judaism where for, for some of the just men, particularly those who never fully realise their position, um, the experience of life on earth is so torturous and traumatizing that it takes a thousand years for their souls to defrost between God's fingers before they can finally ascend to paradise. Um, and sometimes they are so, their souls are so petrified um, that they are lost forever. And every time one of the just men's souls is lost forever, God pushes the second hand one second closer to a doomsday. Um, so it's this really bizarre myth that he's alluded to in the title as well. Um, and within the film itself, there are characters who are alluded to as being just men, but they're clearly not. You know, these are guys who are kind of racketing prostitution and using their power within this kind of proxy society to exploit people sexually or for rations. Um, and so it's really kind of thinking about who in this scenario does Hanukkah think is just and it falls on one of the childlike characters um, and, and without giving away too many details because I want you all to come along on Saturday the 16th of <laughs> December <laughs> at 3pm to watch the film but the, the final two shots of the film really are two of Hanukkah's most accomplished and you know formally impressive compositions um, two very long tracking shots let us say um, very starkly different from one another taking place on different parts of a railway track um, and it is really fascinating to think of what Hanukkah thinks of as a kind of a martyr within this world this sort of very selfish brutal survivalistic world survivalistic I don't really know uh, I'm just inventing words at this point <laughs> in time um, it is really the perfect time around Christmas and Hanukkah then to be revisiting Medellin. exactly I think he, he gets a really bad stick of being a filmmaker who is heartless cold um, sadistic at times but I think actually his work really speaks to a lack of empathy that is there in the world and I think to observe that you need to have it within you you need to be looking for it you mm. need to so i think uh, really that's a it feels to me like it's a it's a good story this one with the <laughs> just yeah men. although it does and end on an incredibly empathetic yeah. note it ends on an embrace that's yeah. not really a spoiler i hope um and you know within hanukkah there's lots of talk about how bleak his cinema yeah. is but there's also and again you see this in happy end 
this sense of there is still warmth there and there are still flickers of the possibility of true human connections, um, particularly sort of two of the most almost sociopathic seeming characters in Happy End, which is the young girl and her grandfather, who've never really had a relationship before. It's said that she visited him once when she was three and she can't remember it. They form this quite close bond throughout the film uh, and you get a sense that they really are related and they are really kind of relating to each other and they have almost this, this form of telekinesis where they are almost in on each other's secrets. And, you know, the, the, the character of the grandfather is also just a hilarious performance in Happy End. Uh, there's a lot of warmth in that character's comedy. You know, it reminds me of... Uh, I lived with my grandpa for a while. He was quite a dark human being. And I remember one day he came home with a big bottle of champagne and said, I want you to crack this bottle open when you find my cold, dead corpse. Uh, and, yeah. So. Well, I was worried we were going to end the show on a nice family-friendly note there, but it was good for James to remind us of the true meaning of anarchy cracking champagne over your dead grandparents' bodies. Right, uh, that is probably going to have to be the end of our Hanaki chat, uh, but it's not the end of the show. We actually have an interview with one of the stars of Happy End, uh, Matteo Kasowitz. So do stick around, because that is coming right up. Uh, we're delighted to welcome Matthew Kasowitz onto the Curzon Film Podcast to talk about Happy End. Hello. We're here to talk about Happy End, uh, the new film by Michael Hanaki. When you get that call that Michael's making a film and there's the option for you to be in it, do you just make the schedule work to be in that film? Uh, yeah, you just, uh, when Anika calls, I loved him as a director, so when he calls uh, to ask you if you want to be an actor in his movie, you don't. You just say yes, you don't even need to the script. Did you know nothing about this? You just got the call saying, I've got, I've got an idea. Yeah, he, he sent me a script, I read it, and uh, I called him back. Okay, for me, watching Happy End, what surprised me most about it is actually just how funny it is. Maybe it's not an easy watch, but maybe compared to a it's other... It's because you're British <laughs> and you have a wicked sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, I saw the movie yesterday. They, 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 they showed it in theatre and people were laughing. And that's what uh, uh, Hanukkah expects uh, because he, he, for him, its situation is so crazy that it's, it's, uh, it's almost fun. Uh, in his darkness, and I think uh, I think the British audience can get it because you have that kind of sense of humor, very dark and very um, uh, you know on the edge. Uh, so so you like that. Do you think this would play differently in different countries? Yeah, in France, people are way more serious, and it's uh, people don't laugh. Right. Yeah. So so but but when we were shooting, uh, Hanukkah laughed. He was laughing at his own scenes sometimes, and uh, and I understand where the comic comes from. I understand that that, that situation, but uh, you need to be really wicked to, to 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 laugh all the time, and you guys did. So yeah. it says a lot about England. I think weirdly, <laughs> there's a there's a lot of there's despite the film being set in France, there's a lot of England in it in the it's yeah because it's it's Dover. So mm. it's Calais and it's Dover, so it's, so it's very close to also to England, and it's the same kind of bourgeoisie, you know, the coast, the family on the coast in Dover or mm. in, in in France, they're the same kind of bourgeoisie, um, old old money, that don't really like new things, and they are you know stranded on their on their um, um, family story, and you know the way they are. And uh, so I think it's very close. If you would have done it in England with the same family, 
the only difference is that you you you'll be able to use John Cleese as the as the old man, and it might be a funnier movie even, <laughs> you know. Um, who do you think would be the Isabelle Huppert? Isabelle Huppert, because you cannot change that. <laughs> uh, uh, so let's let's talk about um, your character. So uh, Thomas Laurent, uh, amongst a quite dysfunctional family, uh, how would you describe the dynamic of the family I have, Laurent? I have no uh, no idea or interest in talking about uh, characters in a movie like that because the characters are not strong enough. What's what's strong is the movie. So the main character is the director and we are just, uh, the actors in, the, in a movie like that are just here to help him to get his, his ideas and visions. But there is no, you know, that's his job, to get people to believe that we're a family. So when you're thinking about your role in the film, you're only thinking about what's no, on not, the script? I'm not talking about, I'm not, yeah, what else do you want to talk about? There is no, I'm not, I'm not doing Napoleon, you know? It's not like you need to get a lot of uh, work done before you shoot because you need to know how he walks or now how he talks or things like that. It has nothing. It's just regular guys. So And the lines, you're not saying Shakespeare. They're regular lines. So it's not about your performance. As an actor, I have no interest in, 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 in that part. What I'm interested in is the result, which is the movie. And the part is not a, is not important. If you if you want to be if you want to be a, an actor, you know there are different movies. There are movies that you do for you as an actor, and you know the part is really amazing. And you you whatever the movie is going to be, you will get your kick out of it because you have an amazing part where you have to do some crazy shit, or you're just want to be part of something where the movie is more important than the part. The part is not that in, that interesting. To act it, to do it, it's not interesting. There's nothing to do. What's interesting is to understand what the director wants and, and gets his point across. When you were reading the script or when you were on set, were you trying to I, understand it? Or were you no, only, I, is you it only what? when you see I, the I, end I read, I read half of the script because it's a very technical script. It's made for him and, 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 uh, and for the, 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 technic, the, the crew because he writes down everything that he wants, but it's not easy to read. It's not nice to read. When I write, when I write scripts, I try to give them, you know, to, to put meat on the bones and so that the, the, the people who read the script are, you know, uh, charmed and uh, like, a, like, a, like a novel. But he's just writing something very t technical. And because the situations are, you know, it's people talking in an office, people talking in a kitchen, and they're not saying really interesting things. What's interesting is the layers that are going under, but you cannot see that in the script. So you have to trust him that he's good at what he does. And I, he said, do you want to talk about the script and the character? And I like, you know what? I don't really get it now, but I'll go and watch the movie. Okay, and you've seen it now. I've seen it, yeah. Do you th and do you think you've learned more about your, the person you were playing no, only now? No, 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 because it's not about the person that I played. I, no, I don't even know the guy. I don't even know his name. I learned more about, um, about the universal problem that he's trying to talk about when he's talking about rich and poor and talking about uh, the situation we're in and uh, are we, are we uh, the, the, the empathy that we have for others and all that. But that's not within a character itself. It's within the subject of the movie.
Okay. Without spoiling anything, I think the, the title of the film may be missing a question mark. So for a lot of characters, whether that's pain relief or marriage, this is something that maybe some of the characters are searching for. Did you ever think what your character is looking for in this at all? I never, I, I'm not interested. No. I told him, do you have anything to tell me about the character? And he said, no, everything is on the script. So I'm like, okay. Well, it's something that there is a lot of in the script is uh, the fact that we're interacting more and communicating more and more through our devices rather than through verbal communication. Yeah. Um, and I think it's taken a while for films to kind of catch up and properly represent that on screen. And so for you, when you're having to act basically silently reacting to type or pretending to type, is that presenting a new challenge for you? Is that something that you think will be coming up more in films that people, you're just gonna have to be acting against a screen? When you don't have any expressions to show, it's not a, just, it just, yeah, okay, roll the camera. You roll the camera, I film you, I, I say, don't do nothing. I shoot you, you're not doing anything, it's not a job, you're just here, okay? Then I put that and, in, and I cut it with a, a picture of you, uh, of, of a, a, a TV screen and somebody watching porn. Mm. And then I add some music to it. And all of a sudden you're a, a, a perv in a, that, uh, you know, uh, uh, with a wicked thing because you're doing, because you, you're looking at porn with no expressions. So people will be like, oh, he's amazing. But actually on the, on the set, it was just, I told you not to do anything because there was nothing to do. And then I tricked everybody because I put that in front of, so it's a trick, it's the director's work. It's not an actor. Actors, what do you think I'm doing when, when he says, okay, I'm shooting you texting? I'm just looking at my hand. Yeah, is that a pretty unique experience? Like, no, it's, that's, that, the, that's the trick from all movies. No, I mean, you say that you're not getting a lot from the, the script or the character here, that you're going into a film and you just do, do exactly what the director says. You, you yeah. don't really seem to have an input on it. But if it wasn't Anoka, I wouldn't have done it. Really? Yeah, because the script was not interesting. The part was not interesting. What's interesting is Anoka, because you know that through his eyes, what you read through his eyes is going to be different. It mm. has his point of view, and you know his point of view. So you're like, okay, sir, whatever you want. It's like um, Jason Pollock, okay? Jason Pollock asks you to, hey, come, I want to paint you. So you come, you get naked, and he does something that just dots of painting on a, on a canvas. And you're like, it doesn't look like me, but fuck it, if that's what he needs to do this, then I'm here for him because he's a genius. But then people are going to see it and like, I heard you post for this, I don't see you. I'm like, yes, yeah, I didn't do nothing. I was just there, he needed that to do that. That's what you do with Anika. You're just here for him to do that, that's it. So there's no real reflections behind it. He was doing all the work, I don't give a shit. Right. You, know? you want me to do it faster, I'll do it faster. I'm not gonna tell him, oh, maybe we should do it like this. Or, he knows what he wants. And when he, do, when he doesn't, then he's struggling to get it. And all you have to do is to be patient and do it again and again and again and again and again. But that's, that's, that, it's the opposite of what an actor should be. Actors are like all ego and everything, but acting, the, the actual work is, is a, 
for most actors it's very difficult because it's you're in your trailer and they call you and they tell you to do your lines and then then they send you back so you're a puppet so it was was it in a way quite a boring time as an actor it's not interesting as a filmmaker or as an audience or as somebody who loves Anuke it's fascinating but if you look at the scenes I, there is no it's nothing I do I put a sandwich I eat the sandwich I drive a car well that, that was actually something that I found really interesting about the film is that in other films there would be big amount of time given to things like a car crash a death an engagement and this film just completely strips that out yeah. like all of those normal yes, yeah. mo- he's, he's more interested in the aftermath of what's what happened than than into the action scenes that will you know explain to people what they need to know if you don't see it and if you just hear it and 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 see it from uh, a character's point of view then the audience has to do the work mm. it's not the same thing you, you, if you don't show then you don't explain and one thing that I'd like to mention is that there's a, a number of Michael's other films where voyeurism and the nature of watching films uh, has been part of the plot. Uh, so here it's actually through the social media videos created by one of the characters or your character's daughter. And it seemed a bit weird to actually see what in previous Haneke films was presented as a horror aspect has now actually just become part of everyday life. Yeah, but no, but he started with Benny's video was the same. It's the way uh, the guy uses the video. It's the way that interaction we have with uh, uh, the voyeurism and all that is different. It's the same. It's the same kind of subject. Uh, of um, uh, he's talking about the same things. Uh, technology evolved, and he's very on point on that. He's, he's very interested in how the young, the young generations are are interacting with the technology. But he's always talking about the same thing, how people interact together and what's not said and, and, and what is really miscommunication between peoples, you know. So he's, he's been working on the same subject for 30 years, I think. All right. Well, Matthew, uh, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. So there we are. That was myself and uh, Matteo Kasowitz. And as well as coming to the cinema to check out all of these wonderful Haneke films, uh, you can watch some stuff on... Carson Home Cinema too. There is the Michael Haneke collection, so if you cannot make it to the cinema, but we urge you to, uh, you can watch them on there as well. But also Good Time is on there as well. And Ryan, you spoke to Sam about this on the podcast a few weeks ago, and we just want to, again, encourage people to go and check that out on the Home Cinema whilst they can. It's uh, one of the best films of the year, I think, by the Safdie brothers, who you may be familiar with. They had a film a couple of years ago called Heaven Knows What, which was an absolutely eviscerating look at the life of a heroin addict on the street but this one is a lot more fun it's a lot more wild stars Robert Pattinson like you've never seen him before go check it out yep at home at home and that is the end of our happy Haneke podcast show uh, thanks so much for listening to us uh, do contact us next week uh, with your thoughts on happy end email podcast at curzon.com with your thoughts and as well as sending in your thoughts on happy end send us in your predictions for the European Film Awards you can check out the nominations by googling European Film Awards and send in who you think is going to win in each category and whoever gets the most number of correct answers we will be able to sort you out a prize Uh, Until next time, do make sure you review us on iTunes, subscribe, leave a review, comment, um, you can give us a star rating, do whatever you want. 
Uh, and tell us we're great. Tell us we're great, yes. And uh, until next time, I think that is, uh, we must say goodbye from this week's extended bourgeois podcast family. It's goodbye from Michael. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Rena. Au revoir. It's goodbye from James. See ya. And it's goodbye from Ryan. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. Thank you.